Uh, my name's Johnny. I'm uh, another one of the leaders at the Globe Church, and I'm going to be preaching today um, as we think a little bit more about what it means to pray, um, and specifically looking at some of the Lord's Prayer. But last week, if you were here, um, we were waiting expectantly, weren't we, for the kickoff of a big football match. Now, I know I'm impressed that Mike's been able to hold off from mentioning it so far. promise I'm not going to talk about it loads, but it was a, it was a big day, wasn't it? And I'm sure that even if you had never, ever watched football before, this month, two or three weeks ago, um, you will have heard of the England football team. You will have heard of Harry Kane in particular at some point over the last month. If you haven't, for those that haven't, Harry Kane is the England football captain. He's the leading goal scorer in the Premier League, leading assist maker in the Premier League, arguably the best England football player of his generation. That's a debate for another time, Sam. I can see you itching for that one. But Harry Kane, on Twitter um, a couple of days ago, posted this letter, a picture of this letter. This is from Oscar. He's six years old, big football fan, and he's written to his hero, Harry Kane, and he said, if you can't read it, I, don't, I know you guys at home probably can't see it, he says, to Harry Kane, please can you come to my house and play football, please? 4 p.m. on Friday. <laughs> Oscar, six-year-old football cat fan, has the boldness to go before Harry Kane and say, please, come to my house and play football. Not I'm going to come to you, not like I know you're busy, you know, if you can find time in your diary, possibly could I come and kick a football at you? No, my house, 4 p.m. Friday, you're playing football with me, Harry. And also, this is, this is sweet, isn't it? It's naive, it's childish, but what Oscar doesn't realize is the enormity of what he's asking. For a six-year-old boy to go to the captain of the England football team and say, come to my house on Friday and play football, he has no idea how big that is. He has no idea what Harry Kane would have to do to free him up from his PR schedule, to get out of the media commitments, to avoid training, to convince his manager that it's a good idea. He doesn't have a clue, does he? He's just asking. Oscar has no idea how big this question is, how big this request is. And I wonder if sometimes we can be a bit like that in prayer. I wonder if sometimes we can lose sight of how big some of the words that we can say to God, the creator of the universe, are. I think this is particularly true for the Lord's Prayer. I mean, those who have been around church for a while, particularly um, here in the UK, you're probably very familiar with saying the words of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and we're going to spend a little bit of time today looking at that, looking at a couple of verses in particular, and exploring what they mean, exploring the enormity and the magnitude of the Lord's Prayer. So if you'd like to get your Bibles open, we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. As I say, these words may be very, very familiar, but I pray and hope that today we'll see them with new eyes. So I'm going to just read them for us, um, and then we'll get into to looking into them. So this is Jesus speaking, and he's, he's teaching people, and he says, This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
So we're going to dig into this today. I'm going to quickly say a prayer for us so that we can um, understand it to ask for God's help, um, and then we'll dig into this. Heavenly Father, we long to understand your word better. Um, We long to understand you better. We long to understand how we can relate to you better. Um, So Lord, we pray now that as we look at the Lord's Prayer, as as we spend some time digging into it, that you would teach us, um, that you would change our hearts, that you would make us understand it more clearly. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be focusing in now. As we, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, we're going to focus in on that second line. Um, we're going to focus in on that line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are the words. I wonder if you're familiar with them. I wonder if you've said them 100,000 times before and they just ripple off your lips as if they're nothing. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And my prayer and hope is that we see today the enormity of that statement, the enormity of that request to God. And as we do this, we're going to look in, as we look through it, we're going to see two things. We're going to see that when we're praying this prayer, we're inviting an invasion. Your kingdom come, we're inviting the invasion of God's kingdom. And then we're praying for the universal surrender to his will. Your will be done. We're inviting the invasion of God's kingdom, and we're praying for the universal surrender to his will. So first of all, we're inviting the invasion. Jesus uses this language of kingdom, doesn't he? He uses kingdom language as he teaches us how to pray. And this is because he's talking about authority. You see, where you've got a kingdom, you've got a throne. And on that throne sits a king or a queen, And they have authority and dominion over the whole of their kingdom. And the character of a kingdom reflects the characteristics of the ruler on the throne. Right? The the life, the experience of the people, what it is to live in a kingdom, reflects the character of the one that is sitting on the throne. Now, we all know this, don't we? Because we've seen the Lion King. Has everyone seen the Lion King? Yeah, the Lion King's a really simple good king, bad king story, right? Good king, good kingdom, bad king bad kingdom. For those who haven't seen it, you've got Mufasa. He's the good king. He's great. We love Mufasa. And when Mufasa reigns, he stands on the top of Pride Rock and he looks down over the Pride Lands and they're green and they're full of life and the antelopes are jumping and he talks about the circle of life and everyone respects the circle of life from the ants to the antelopes. And it's a good kingdom. It's a happy kingdom because there's a good king on the throne. And then, Scar Scar comes into the story, right? Scar kills Mufasa. And when Scar, sorry, no, no spoilers if you haven't seen it, that's it. Basically, he kills him and then Simba takes over. But anyway, when Scar's on the throne, he's a bad king. Okay, so Scar's a bad king. And when the bad king is on the throne, the kingdom is a bad kingdom, right? The greens in the, in the cartoon, they all turn brown. There's death, there's famine. The hyenas go and cackle and they tear everyone apart. There's no respect for other creatures. Good king, good kingdom. Bad king, bad kingdom. And Jesus says, when we're to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying, Lord, on earth, as it is in heaven, we want you to reign. We want the kingdom of the earth to reflect the character of God as king. Right? Because a kingdom reflects the character of the king. So as we invite the invasion of God, as we invite the invasion of Jesus to sit on the throne of this earth, we're wanting, we're praying for the earth to reflect his character. That's our prayer. And 
when, he said, when Jesus says your kingdom come as well, he, he shows us that there is a kingdom that we're living in on this earth. There are many, many kings competing for the authority of this kingdom. We saw that a little bit last week, didn't we? If, if you were here, if you heard John T's sermon, we were looking at the five dimensions of the cross. And one of the dimensions is that the enemy is driven out. And in that passage in John chapter 12, the enemy is described as the prince of this world. In Ephesians, we see them described as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. There is, there is another king that is competing for our affection. There's another king that is competing for authority. Sometimes he's given those titles. Sometimes he's called Satan. Sometimes he's called the devil. He's put, there's someone else that is competing with God for authority over the kingdom on the earth. And what, what the enemy does is they deceive us. And, and they put things, objects, things that people that are very attractive on the throne. And these things then set the rules. Right? So for some of us, it might be, it might be money. Money finds itself on the throne of our kingdom. And money, money is a good thing, but it's a bad king, right? Like, if we're governed by money, bad things happen. We see families get torn apart because people are fighting over money. We see greed, and we see people trying to hoard all the money for themselves at the expense of others. Huge suffering, huge poverty, because people let money rule their hearts. People let money rule these kingdoms. For other people, it might be image, self-image. I think a lot of us put our own image as, as the king, the authority over our lives. And as we, as we look at the image of ourselves and we put it on the throne as we worship it, it can cause deep insecurity, deep worry. We find ourselves looking at other people and being judgmental or worried or, or anxious about them. It can make us vulnerable to being treated badly. It can make us treat other people badly. And it opens up a whole world of exploitation and abuse. You see, image, when it's on the throne, is a bad, bad king. And, and there are many other things that sit into this category of things that can sit in the throne. It might be football, a great way to enjoy a Sunday evening if you're watching England in the Euro final. A terrible king because it offers no hope for the future. It might be friendships. It might be London life, it might be career, it might be our studies. Whatever it is, there are lots of things that are competing to have authority over our lives. And so here it is, when Jesus says, we're praying, let your kingdom come, we're praying to our Father in heaven, would you invade this kingdom? Would your power take authority over all those other things so that the kingdom that we live in might reflect your character? rather than the character of those phony kings, those bad kings that can take authority. So as we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're inviting an invasion. And maybe you need convincing this is a good idea. Maybe you find it hard to pray to God for his kingdom to come. Now, if you're, if you're not a Christian in the room, if you, if you don't know Jesus and love him and trust him for yourself, this might surprise you, but... I want to say, I wouldn't expect you to pray this prayer. I would not expect you to invite the invasion of Jesus to be king over your life if you don't already know and trust Jesus. Just as when we're voting in a general election, I wouldn't expect you to go and cast your vote for someone if you hadn't looked at their policies and you hadn't looked at their character. I wouldn't expect you to give authority 
to somebody who you weren't sure of. So if you're not a Christian and you don't trust Jesus, it is so, so good that you're here. But can I encourage you to look to Jesus? Can I encourage you to explore who he is? Maybe ask the person that's invited you to church. If you've got a Christian family or friend, look at Jesus' life. Open the pages of the gospel where we see who Jesus is. And look at the way that he treats the most vulnerable people in society with ultimate dignity and compassion. Look at the authority he has as he commands death to go away, as he raises Lazarus to life. Look at his commands and and hear as he gently encourages you to search your heart. Hear the challenge of Jesus as a teacher. Look at his glory. Look at his glory on the cross. As As he hangs on the cross, his coronation moment, the moment that he affirmed himself as king on the cross. Marvel at his glory. Look at Jesus. So can I encourage you, if you're not a Christian, if you don't yet know Jesus, please, please look at Jesus. Because we believe, I believe, that Jesus is a king and we want to give him authority over the earth. And I wouldn't expect you to put your faith in him if you hadn't looked at him and trusted him first. So please look at Jesus. But maybe you are a Christian. You are someone who has, has trusted in Jesus. You're here because, because you're trusting Jesus and you want to you wanna be part of his family. But it's still hard to long for God's kingdom to come. It's not an easy thing, right? Like, just because we're Christians, just because we've got to that point where we trust Jesus, doesn't make it easy to, to trust God as our king. There are a couple of things that we're going to do right now just to look at, to get a glimpse of what God's kingdom looks like, to encourage us to put Jesus on the throne as king. And we're going to look at some ways that Jesus describes the kingdom of God. We don't need to turn to it, but in, in Matthew chapter 13, there's three stories. And we're going to look at them, and they're going, to, they're going to show us what the kingdom of God looks like. And first of all, we're going to see that it's a kingdom of immeasurable value. It is a kingdom of immeasurable value. Jesus tells two stories, one about treasure hidden in a field and one about a pearl of great price. And both of these stories, someone finds the treasure and the pearl and then they go and they give everything they've got away. They go and sell it so that they can buy the treasure and the pearl and keep it for themselves. Because nothing that they have on earth is worth anything compared to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like something that you're willing to give everything you've got for. There is nothing that's worth keeping if it's costing you the kingdom of heaven. So I wonder what the things are that, are, that we're not willing to sell for the kingdom of heaven. What is it that, that we see as so valuable that we're not willing to go after the kingdom of heaven? What are those things for you? What are those things that we're not willing to sell, we're not willing to get rid of for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells us that it is worth so much more than anything. There is no career, no relationship, no amount of money, no object, no studies, no city to live in. There is nothing that even scratches the surface of the value of the kingdom of heaven. It's of immeasurable, immeasurable value. And secondly... The third story that Jesus gives us, he says it is a kingdom ruled with perfect justice. So just after these two stories about the treasure, he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a net. It's a net that goes through the sea and it scoops all of the fish up. And then there's a separation process where the good fish go over there and the bad fish get chucked away. And the kingdom of heaven is like that because it's where good and bad get separated 
There is no space for evil in the kingdom of heaven. It is a kingdom that's ruled with perfect, perfect justice. And don't we long for that day? Don't we long for the day where we live in a kingdom ruled by perfect justice? I know this year, for me and for many, many, many of us, and this year, I mean 18 months, two years, has been really revealing in terms of the injustices that we see in the world. We've had lots of conversations about racism. We've had lots of conversations about sexism. And, and it becomes increasingly clear that the societies that we live in are founded upon racial and sexist oppression. And, and these, these characteristics are perpetrated. And the kingdom is filled with evil. Right? It's filled with injustice. And everywhere we look, we see people that are, that are cast aside because of the color of their skin or because of what they believe or because of their gender or because of a disability or because they don't have enough, because they're, because they're on the fringes of society. We live in a kingdom that is, that is built upon layer and layer and layer of injustice. And don't we long for a day where God's kingdom comes and we see a kingdom that is ruled with perfect justice? Because that's what Jesus says. He says in the kingdom of heaven, there is no room for evil. It gets cast aside. It's perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly equal all the time. Oh, would we pray for that day? Lord, your kingdom come. So as we pray for God's kingdom to come, we pray that the kingdom of this earth would reflect the character of God as king. Perfect justice, perfect love, perfect compassion, perfect equality. As we pray for this invasion, we're facing one of two choices. Because when there is an invasion, there's two ways things can go, right? Either there's a fight. Because the seated ruler, the, the people that currently have authority, fight the invading force. And they resist it. They're not willing to let this invader just come in and take over. So they're going to fight against it. And they're going to try and hold their ground. Or there's a surrender. And, and the people, the force that are currently there, surrender to the authority of the invading power. And you get a peaceful transition. You get harmony as the, as the invaded power surrenders. The people of the kingdom can look to the new authority as ruler. So you have this choice, there's a fight or a surrender. So as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So our second point, we pray for universal surrender to God's kingdom. So we're inviting an evasion, we pray for universal surrender. So as we, as we hit this point, it's, it's helpful to think a little bit about what God's will is. Right? So if we're surrendering to God's will was praying, Lord, your will be done. It's, helpful to, it's helpful to understand a little bit more about what we mean by God's will. And the Bible talks about God's will in two ways. It talks about God's will of decree, his sovereign ordained will. And God's will of decree tells us that everything that comes to be happens because God wills it to be. In his sovereignty, he has a will and he brings everything into effect. And secondly, there's God's will of command. His laws, the Bible, as we, as we read it, we see the commands of God. And that is God's will of command. That is what he wants for people on earth. 
So just as when um, someone passes on from this world, they leave a will behind. They say, this is what I want to happen to all my stuff. The Bible talks about God as having a, a will. He, he wants us, as his people, to behave a certain way. So when we pray to God, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are both at the same time declaring God's sovereignty, declaring his sovereign will, declaring his will of decree. And at the same time, we are searching his will of command. We're asking for clarity on what he wants from us. So we're declaring his will of decree, trusting in his sovereignty, and searching his will of command, asking for his help to understand what we should do. And Jesus, as, as the teacher, as he teaches us how to pray in this Lord's Prayer, later in the Gospels, and this comes up in a number of the Gospels, he becomes the perfect model of what it means to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. The night before he died in, in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed this prayer. He prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Okay, can you see it? There's two bits to that. If you're willing, take this cup from me. He is searching God's will of command. He's saying, Lord, tell me what you want. What I want is to not have to carry this cup of wrath. What he means by the cup is going to the cross and having to die. He's saying, Father, what I want is to not have to, but please tell me what your will is. If you're willing, take it away from me. He's searching God's will of command. And at the same time, in the same breath, he is declaring God's will of decree. Not my will, but your will be done. Because he knows that God, his Father, has a sovereign purpose that is bigger and better and will ultimately rule for the good. So he simultaneously searches the command and declares the decree. And so what does this mean practically for you and I? Like, what does it mean for us to, to search the command and, and declare the decree? Well, on a personal level, first of all, it means to, to repent, to turn away, literally, from the kings that we currently follow and turn towards God as king. We hear this word repent, maybe quite a lot of you have been in church. It literally means to say, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. We're turning away from the other authorities and we're turning to God's authority. So we repent, and then we trust. So once we're saying, Lord, I want you to be king and ruler of my life, I trust you that your purposes are good. I trust you that in your sovereignty, you will bring into effect your kingdom. You will bring into effect things that are good for my life. And it does require trust because so often things aren't easy, right? In his sovereignty, in ways that we will never understand, there are so many things that happen in this world that are incredibly hard. And what it means to say, Lord, your will be done, is to say, Lord, I don't know why that's happened, and it hurts, and I'm broken, but I trust that you are good. And Lord, I will for your kingdom to come, and I want you to reign with authority in this earth. And that can look really weak, can't it? As we, as we surrender to God's will, and often when we talk about this language of surrender, we think of weakness. We talk about throwing in the towel or waving the white flag, and we think it's a, a weak thing to do. And it will often in this world look 
very weak. Jesus, after he prayed, Lord, your will be done, the next day was dragged, beaten, mocked, and scorned to the cross. It looks very, very weak. But what we see as we pray this prayer is that in the weakness of surrender, there is enormous power. Because as one by one, the hearts of Christians turn to God in surrender, that is the very means by which God will bring about his kingdom on earth. See, God brings about his kingdom as people surrender in their hearts to his will. It's the means by which his kingdom will come into effect. And so for us on an individual basis, one by one, as we, as we pray your will be done, when we pray your will be done, we are bringing God's kingdom closer. When we say, Lord, I'm not going to follow my things anymore, I'm going to follow you, we're bringing God's kingdom closer. And so as we pray this prayer, as we pray your will be done, yes, we're praying it for ourselves, but we're praying for universal surrender. We're praying for every heart on this earth to turn away from the things that it's currently worshipping and to turn to God as authority and ruler of the world. And so we have to understand how big this prayer is. Think about Oscar. He didn't have a clue what he was asking when he said to Harry Kane, come round to my house. As we pray your will be done, we're praying for a revival. We're praying for hearts all over this world to give up the authority to surrender to God's will so that he might reign and his kingdom might come. Because God's kingdom will come as one by one people repent and surrender to his will. So it is an enormous prayer. It's a global, transformational prayer. But it's also a really costly prayer. It's going to cost a great deal to many of us to follow God's will. And that's because by nature, we, we reject God's will. Talked about it, it's quite, it sounds quite easy when I say it's about turning around, right? I'm walking this way and I just do that. But it's a big thing, right? Our hearts long to stay over there. It's a real tearing to turn. And it costs us a lot. I know people in this room and in my life who have given so much to follow God's will. There are people who have made choices about jobs. There are people who have given up large amounts of money. There are people who have come to London because they're following God's will. There are people who have left the country and gone all over the world because they want to follow God's will. There are people who have fought addiction. They've cut things out of their lives. They've given up on wonderful things. There are people who have decided not to pursue relationships in certain areas. There are people who have pursued relationships in certain areas. And all of this can come at an enormous, enormous cost because to follow God's will is to put aside our own authority and to surrender to him. And it is a costly, costly prayer to pray. And can I just say at this point, I've been really convicted this week, thinking and preparing this and, and thinking about the cost that it is to follow God's kingdom, follow God's will. I've been really convicted by how practically often there isn't a great deal of cost to me. In, in my privilege, in where I live, in my life, there often isn't a huge cost right now in how, when I say your will be done. And I can assure you that is not because I'm living perfectly in line with God's will. It's because deep in my heart, there is a reluctance to accept Jesus' reign and authority in all things. And, and I'm clinging on to my own stuff. Right? And, and can I... Can I gently suggest that I'm not the only person in the room who is, doesn't count the cost in everything? 
I'm sure I'm not the only one here who, when we think about God's will, clings on to the things that currently rule my heart and doesn't want to let them go. I'm sure that's not just me. So can I ask, as we reflect on this, as we think about this today, what are the things that, what are, the things that are sitting on the throne of your heart? What are the things that carry authority in your life? The, the, the kings that we're not willing to invite the invasion to conquer and then surrender. Because this is a really costly prayer. It's an enormous prayer. It's a costly prayer. It's also a hope-filled prayer. It's a hope-filled prayer. Because God's kingdom is not fully here yet, but it will be one day. One day, we will know God's kingdom perfectly. Jesus gives us a clue, doesn't he, in that, in that second verse. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we want to know what God's kingdom looks like, we can look to heaven. We can look to a day when God's kingdom will be perfectly here, when Jesus will reign with unmitigated authority over all things. Revelation chapter 21 gives us a little taste of this. Um, let me just quickly read one, one verse from Revelation 21. One and a half verses. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. When we pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're praying to see something of that kingdom on earth. And it is a hope-filled prayer because we are trusting that one day we will see Jesus' authority perfectly. One day we will be sitting before his throne and Jesus, as the king, will wipe the tears from our eyes. Because the reality is that as we live in this world, it can hurt, right? There is pain, there, is tear, there are tears. We grieve and we mourn. Because God's kingdom isn't fully here yet. It's, it's revealed in Jesus, but it's not fully here yet. We can experience it. But as we pray this prayer, we're saying, I do have hope. Through my tears, I hope for a day when I will sit before the throne of Jesus and he will wipe the tears from my eyes. It's a hope-filled prayer. And finally, it's a believer's prayer. It's a believer's prayer. And primarily as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's not a prayer about this world. I know, I know a lot of how we've been talking is about how we would experience in this world. And, and yes, it can be a prayer for this world. But it's not primarily about this world. This prayer is a private prayer that is primarily about God. It's about him. It's about the king. It is a prayer of worship to our Father in heaven. It is a statement that we want to instate God as the authority and ruler over the universe. It's a statement that we trust in his plans and obey his will. So this prayer is a believer's prayer, and it is a statement of trust in our Father in heaven, the line before it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So as we pray this prayer... We need to know the enormity of it. We need to know how big it is. 
If God's kingdom is to come on earth, we're praying for a revival. We're praying for the world, everyone in the world, to surrender to God's will. That is an enormous prayer. It's an exciting one, isn't it? But we'll also feel the cost of it. right? It will, it will cost us to pray this prayer. But we can pay that cost because it is a hope-filled prayer. It's a prayer that drips with anticipation and excitement of a day when we will sit before Jesus and worship him. And it's a believer's prayer. It's a prayer of trust to God, the almighty, reigner, ruler, creator, sustainer of heaven and earth. And fundamentally, that is what makes it so different from Oscar's letter to Harry Kane. Right? Because when Oscar writes to Harry Kane, Harry Kane has to listen to his manager, he has to listen to his nutritionist, he has to listen to his diary person, he has to listen to the PR people, all of those people, the PR people probably want him to go and play football with a kid, but they, he has to listen, he's bound by all these other people, right? This is a believer's prayer, praying to the eternal, almighty king of heaven and earth. So Lord, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Let me pray, and then we're going to wrap up. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. Lord, we ask for an invasion of your kingdom. We ask that your Holy Spirit would invade our hearts and that you would sit on the thrones of our hearts. We ask that you would invade the hearts of the leaders of this world so that they would bow to the authority of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would invade the institutions that have perpetuated injustice and that they would become places that reflect your kingdom. Lord, we ask for that invasion. Please, Lord, would you come and would your kingdom come on this earth? And Lord, we ask for a universal surrender to your will. Would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Lord, help us to surrender ourselves in our own hearts. Help us walk away from the things that we love to cling on to and to trust in your kingdom. And Lord, would that be a prayer for this whole world? Would everybody turn and bow the knee to Jesus as king? In his great name we pray. Amen.